Blog Talk Radio. Actually, though, not going away completely as myself and Lisa O'Brien will be hosting uh, Behind the Curtain. Also have a true crime show uh, with Lisa O'Brien coming up. And also the big edition of On the Real, uh, a progressive show that Sean Castleberry and Micah Qualls will be hosting here on Talk Radio 49 on Sunday. So this being the last episode of the Pulse podcast, we're bringing you the of Tupac Shakur. And notorious B.I.G. Obviously, uh, a lot of those members of Big uh, Beef between West Cag Day, culminating in the two murders, one of Tupac Shakur and the other of uh, Sprawless, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G. But joined in studio, uh, Michael Carnahan, our producer, Sean Berry, and Lisa O'Brien. How are you two doing today? Doing great, Brad. How are you? So this kind of music had just basically the scene when it was more impressionable growing up as a teenager. Obviously, you know, Sean, you're being close in age to me a little bit. You obviously know the impact that Tupac and the Taurus had on society back then. Oh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was devastating, you know, especially for Generation X who grew up with hip-hop and, you know, Coming up through the 80s and, and the 90s, Tupac Shakur just being, you know, probably one of the best artists in the hip-hop uh, music scene altogether. And, of course, Biggie. Biggie was a, a rising star and, and just up at the top of his game time of these tragedies. You know, it, it, was, it was definitely devastating to anyone that was in, you know, in, into the hip-hop music at the time. Definitely. Well, right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Lisa, are you with us? Yes, I am. So, Lisa, before we bring uh, Michael Dorsey and uh, the detective uh, Kitty onto the show, you know, give me your first impression when you look back at, at the at Tupac and, and B.I.G., especially the murders and their influence in hip-hop. Uh, I can't speak that much to their influence in hip-hop, although, I mean, the fact that they've continued on long after their deaths is... Uh, it says a lot, but uh, the murders themselves were both drive-by shootings, and I have to say they would have been difficult, if not impossible, for any police department anywhere in the United States to solve. It was a monumental task because of the nature of the Right, and you know, obviously, Tupac's murder happening in Vegas, while be a notorious uh, Christopher Wallace murder happening in Los Angeles, and I think it was what 1996, if memory serves. It's been a, I've done a lot. Yeah, 
Yeah, Tupac was 96 and Biggie was 97. They were and, six or nine months apart. Right, and you're talking about, um, you know, the 90s was a hotbed in Los Angeles, especially the, the notorious B.I.G. murder, too, because, you know, you had Rodney King, you had O.J. Simpson, and then this murder, and trying to solve it, it's still unsolved. It'll be interesting to, you know, to see if there was any, and that's one of the questions I want to get to, and we're going to bring Detective Hating on, is, you know, before we get, I just want to know, was there any pressure felt by the LAPD to try to to, to wrap this case up by the end? given the circumstances that had come before, like the OJ and the Rodney King and all that. So, well, there was, there was pressure in the form of, first of all, a detective who, quote, linked the murders to corruption in the LAPD, and then by a lawsuit filed by Christopher Wallace, uh, Christopher Wallace's mother, wife, and children accusing right. the LAPD of wrongful death hmm. and well, we've got, corruption and all those things. Right. Well, Lisa, we're going to bring now, welcoming into the Pulse uh, podcast here in the Sub-On Vapor Studios here in Little North Little Rock, we're going to have Detective Kading join us. Detective, are you with us? I am. I can hear you loud and clear. Well, I hope that you're having a wonderful evening, sir, and we do appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Um, I wasn't really honestly going to not lie. I was not familiar with the case as much as I probably should have been, considering it happened in an influential time in my life. But, um, you know, watching the documentary that Mr. Dorsey had put together and you being on shed a whole lot of a light onto this case. And, and so... Could you explain how you got involved with the case for anyone that may not know? Well, like your other guest said, there was a lawsuit waged against the city of L.A. and specifically the Los Angeles Police Department um, alleging that there was malfeasance and corruption and all of these other, you know, these elements and accusations against the the police department um, in regard to Christopher Wallace's murder. And so in 2006, uh, during one of the hearings for the, for the trial, a judge had made a, um, you know, a, uh, uh, what I call it, she'd made a, a during a motion um, hearing, she had made a statement from the bench saying that if she were to make a judgment against the city, it would be to the tune of like $400 million because that's what they had determined to be Smalls' lifetime earning potential would be. So when the city heard a number like that, um, you know, their, their knees started to shake and they decided they needed to do a full court press trying to solve the murders uh, and to determine whether or not there was, in fact, any involvement by the LAPD. So that's how I got involved. They invited me to do the investigation. I formed a task force and then we started moving forward. And I can only imagine, too, as I heard the, the, the figure of $400 million, and I can only imagine the the black eye that and, and that the LAPD has had over the years uh, involving cases and their alleged mistreatment of, of whatnot. I can only imagine that they want to try to resolve this and, and, and clear any wrongdoing by any potential LAPD. So, um Sean, I'm going to go ahead and throw it over to you uh, if you have any questions and um, for the detective. 
Yes. Um, you know, watching the documentary I saw today and look at everything trying to together, there there was a from what I understand, there was a lot of information coming in to the LAPD from the jails from you know were uh, uh hearing different stories difficult that. I'm, uh, I'm I'm catching bits and pieces. I don't know if uh, there's some some interruption with the line. Um, I think I caught most of that. Um, you were asking whether or not there was a lot of information coming in from people in in the jails. Yes. Yeah, there was there was informants coming forward. Um, very questionable type of informants. Uh, they all had ulterior motives. So we have to take all of that with a grain of However, um, when that information was coming in and being evaluated, uh, most of it was being discredited. However, one detective uh, wanted to see things towards, you know, he, he, he was inclined to accept the credibility of these informants and uh, not look at it as objectively as he should have. And that led to the postulation of a theory uh, that theory being that a couple of rogue police officers that were working for death row records or that were alleged to be working for death row records um, were involved in the murder. And so, you know, he ultimately got very frustrated because other people weren't seeing what he was seeing. And uh, he just decided to, to quit the job and get involved in writing a book. And that book is what kind of captured public imagination and, you know, in the void or the absence of solving the case, the public accepted what was in that book as the probable explanation for the murders. And that was that police officers were involved. So, of course, that book leads to the lawsuit and, you know, the rest is kind of history. But back to the original question, those informants from jail had been completely discredited. Um, not only did they recant their statements and admitted they lied, uh, but before they had done that, their information had already been refuted by follow-up investigation. Very, very problematic from day one. But my predecessor, Russell Poole, the detective, um, was seeing things with, you know, with a skewed vision. Gotcha. Understood. Uh, and, and, and again, with just the, the amount of information that was coming in with people calling with tips. I mean, having to go through and, and look at all of that, not only from the jails, but from the streets and, you know, just everybody that, that, that wanted to try to get this case solved. I mean, it, it's 20 years since, and, and people are still, you know, bringing information forward. I mean, it just has to be extremely frustrating to be dealing with that. Correct. Yeah. It's frustrating from day one. Um, the original detectives, whether it was Las Vegas or Los Angeles, was, were very frustrated from the beginning. And part of the reason is, um, contrary to, to what you're saying, we weren't getting the information that we needed. A lot of people were coming in with hearsay information or speculation, but we weren't getting eyewitness information. The eyewitness information was very, um, very difficult to obtain because everybody that was related to these these two murder victims uh, were, you know, kind of um, 
taking the approach of the street code. You don't snitch. You don't cooperate with the police. You don't tell them what we saw. We'll handle it ourselves. You know, there were a lot of gang, there's gang activities surrounding both of these murders, and the gangs don't talk. And, and, you know, in the absence of eyewitness information, it's really difficult. Like your, your prior guest, your other guest has said, it's very, very difficult to solve these when the people that were there aren't telling you what they saw and they aren't cooperating. So it was very frustrating. And to this day, um, you know, I, we still feel that frustration because these should have been solved way back then. Well, and I've got a, uh, Lisa, at any time, uh, any time, uh, hotbed Lisa's up. And at any time, Lisa, that you want to come in and ask a question, you know, obviously feel free to do that. We're going to bring also uh, Michael Dorsey on the show now as well. Um, he made the documentary murder after I've actually got an opportunity to, to check out on YouTube. Very fascinating, informative um, interview. Obviously, learned a lot about this case uh, for no- the notorious B.I.G. So, Mr. Dorsey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. So, I have to ask, uh, you know, just... Can you give like a little bit about yourself and how you came to make the documentary and you know, such like that? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, it was uh, it was pretty simple. I've I've made um, a couple of other uh, or several other uh, true crime documentaries, and uh, I came across Greg's book, uh, Murder Rap, which came out in 2011. Uh, I came out. I, I I came across it maybe six months or so after it came out, and uh, I just contacted Greg and asked if he wanted to make a documentary. And uh, he said, yeah, and he sent me a copy of the book and said, read it, and if you're still interested, you know, let's do something. And so uh, it took about three years, but, um, you know, there were a lot of case files to go through, and um, it, was a, it was a huge undertaking. But uh, we came out with the film, and it's, you know, now this story is becoming a, a, a scripted show on a major cable network. So it's really exciting. Yeah, I, I, we we obviously everyone that watched the Super Bowl saw the advertisement for that. Uh, you yep. can check that out when it comes out. I'll let you give the specific details on that. Um, but I need to. I wanted to ask, uh, and if you if you can answer it, you can answer it. If not, I completely understand. But given the nature of this case with the two high profile celebrities, and the fact that you had a lot of gang activity involved. And this thing seems to have stretched from the East Coast to the West Coast. Obviously, there's been some power players to a degree, I guess, as you want to call them. Has either one of you gentlemen felt any heat or any backlash in doing the book and or the documentary? Uh, I'll comment on the documentary. Uh, no, not not a single uh, threat or anything like that over the film, no. And I concur with Mike, you know, we, we legally we're very sound. We've never had any type of even whisper of a lawsuit regarding the claims we make in either the book or the documentary. And, and then personally, um, you know, nobody has ever made any uh, overt threats or anything like that um, about the contents of either of those projects. I, and, I, and I wondered about that because, you know, obviously – with the, the, the nature of this and, um, you know, if they're going to go after two high-profile, you know, superstars such as Tupac and, and, and Christopher Wallace, you know, 
you would have to wonder because I would imagine you uncover a few policy. They don't want you to uncover as far as activities go. It seems like in the documentary, it, 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 you've made the key breakthrough. TVD apparently starts to point the finger at at, uh, at Puffy, and then what was uh, the just name that Tupac attacked the club, the casino for Orlando. Orlando Anderson. That is, yeah. and that's that's Keefe D's cousin, correct? But, uh, but he's but he's been dead twenty years. Okay. Yeah. So, so he's been. So you, okay? So Orlando passed away. You said twenty years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Orlando Anderson was killed in a, a gang shootout uh, in 1998. About about 18 months after Tupac was killed. Okay, okay, oh, man. See, and the and the the everything that comes out, it's just hard. It's a it's a lot of information to try to to process. Uh, it is, and, you know, <laughs> because now, do you think? Let me ask you this: with with Keefe D giving these statements that he's done, is this? Have y'all examined the validity of this compared to maybe? Okay, there's no repercussion that Orlando could suffer now due to this. So that's why he's throwing. I mean, what would be the motive for him to to sell out his own nephew? I guess is the best way I could put it. Um, well, the mo- his motivation would be the opposite of that because it's um, you know, the worst person he could point a finger at was that was his own family member, and his you know just from a family perspective, that's his sister's kid that he's apparently you know that he he said what pulled the trigger. Um, it would have been much easier, you know, the the other guy in the back seat with Orlando Anderson was not related to Keefe and was also dead by the time he confessed. He could have just as easily put it on that guy and not, you know, risked any blowback from his own family members for doing that. And just to add to that, to follow up to the second part of your question, Keefe D was in a position where he was compelled to tell the truth. He was under what's known as a proffer agreement and facing 25 years to life on a narcotics case that we had built against him just for the purpose of getting his cooperation. So his, his options were to lie um, and go to prison for the rest of his life or tell the, tell the truth and get out from under his drug charges. And so these things were very, very strong motivators for him to tell the truth. And of course, with his information, we don't just accept it as truth because he says it. We have to go out and then corroborate it, which we did. Uh, definitely makes sense there. Sean, are you with us? Yes, yes, I'm just listening. This is so fascinating. I, I tell you, I'm telling you right now, and I, and I hope to, you know, I appreciate you two gentlemen coming on, and I don't, I hopefully don't stumble over my thoughts too bad because, you know, <laughs> having processed this, you know, I was approached by Michael, and I had, I had almost put the, the Tupac murder and the Biggie Smalls murder on the back burner for me, you know, it's been what, 20, 20 years, 21 years. And it's kind of like, wow. But to watch that documentary, uh, that, that, uh, you put Mr. Dorsey put together based off this book that you, Mr. Kate, detective Katie wrote. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. How long did it, uh, take you to write the book detective? The book took just over a year to get it, uh, written and edited and, you know, go through the whole process of, uh, you know, getting a book published. 
And then it, a couple of years went by and then, and then Mike contacted me and it actually took longer to make the documentary because the documentary is more detailed. You know, it's a, it's a living testimony of the case as, a, as opposed to a written one. The, the, the book, I'm sorry, the documentary, you know, interviews a number of people, including um, one of the confessed killers. And so, you know, it really brings the book to life in a way that people can really sink their teeth into. And um, it is, you know, kudos to Mike for doing such a wonderful job with the story. Yeah, when you hear the actual words of, you know, people confessing to this and, you know, their own vernacular and um, it's, it's, there's a, it's, like, it's a special thing over just reading, you know, quotes in, you know, a newspaper article. Right. Absolutely. I understand. I mean, to when you you were playing the little clips and then had the subtitles underneath it, the like you said, just the way it was said, and and you kind of get a, a hearing it from them. Me personally, Sean, I don't know about you, but when I heard these people talking, like I've I've never experienced to the level the lifestyle that that Orlando and Keefe D and Tupac and all these people. You know, they lived back then. They, I mean, obviously, I've never been associated with any kind of gang or and or gang violence or in that culture and in that time. Now, we had, obviously, if you guys are familiar with documentaries, being from, I'm from Little Rock, we had the whole banging in Little Rock thing. So, obviously, gangs were an issue anywhere you went and within the United States at, at a time, point in time. But uh, just to hear them was... Sean, to me, was absolutely, it kind of took you into this mindset that you had, I could never have fathomed in my head, you know, like the whole, um, you know, big Tupac's murder. So obviously to me, it felt like this was a retaliatory uh, act that this group pulled off. Just, you know, the whole ditching the car, putting the weapon underneath there, coming back the next day. That's just to me is. Sean, I mean, what was your thoughts going through that listing that these people talk and how they, they describe things and, and what they did? Well, uh, again, having grown up, you know, Generation X, uh, listening to hip-hop in the 80s and the 90s, it was, you know, an interesting time to be listening to this music and to see what was going on. I mean, everybody remembers when N.W.A. came out on the scene and, you know, gangster rap just – exploded and went everywhere and then by the time you know Tupac and Biggie are going back and forth with their you know east coast west coast it was it was you know a little confusing especially for you know just fans of the music because we aren't involved in you know gang activity and different things like that so uh your average music listener that was seeing all this was probably you know like myself a little disappointed that you know these guys can't get together and collaborate more but again, it was an element of, you know, life, lifestyle that, you know, your average person doesn't understand. So now, Mr. Dorsey and, and Detective, have you guys, um, I'm sure you probably have, well, Mr. Dorsey has dropped off the line. We'll definitely try to effort him back. And But now, Detective, have you... Uh, was there any point when you had to question uh, Suge Knight and maybe his potential involvement in any of this? Because, as we know, a very nefarious character, uh, for sure. Um, 
So I was just wondering his involvement potentially in all of this. And, you know, obviously y'all have come away with it, uh, with the fact that he had nothing to do with it. But initially, what was your thoughts on Suge Knight? Well, listen, Suge Knight, in, in regards to Biggie Smalls' murder, has always been a primary suspect, suspect number one, actually. And whether you go with the corrupt police officer theory, well, Suge Knight's at the base of that. You know, it was always that Suge Knight had hired some cops to do it. Or whether you go with the true story, which is the Suge Knight gang member, um, which is the one we validated, Suge Knight has always been a suspect and at this point in time is, um, you know, a validated perpetrator of Biggie Small's murder. Suge Knight is not a suspect in Tupac Shakur's murder, however. Suge Knight's a victim in that murder. And it was that murder, the Las Vegas murder of Tupac Shakur and the shooting of Suge Knight, which he was retaliating for when they shot and killed Biggie. So they're connected in that way. But Suge Knight has certainly never been exonerated for the Biggie murder. He is the primary suspect. And at this point in time, I would say he's absolutely guilty. Right. And, and obviously, uh, in the court of public opinion, with given his past history, uh, it's not hard to see. I mean, we're talking about a guy that's used bullying tactics and whatnot to, to advance his career and, and, the, and his label at one time death row. Lisa O'Brien, uh, you, you have some questions for the detective or Mr. Dorsey? I certainly do. And, and first of all, I have to do my fangirl detective fading. You have written one of the best true crime books that I've ever read in my 40-something years reading true crime. Oh, well, bless you for that. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate it. That's a huge compliment. I I just, I I was blown away. I had to make myself stop reading. But um, I, I just, I haven't watched the documentaries. I read the book. You know, loved all the twists and turns in the investigation. I felt terrible for you when LAPD had their moment of, okay, you know, we we don't want a scandal, so we're going to change things up. Um, And do you really feel they just don't want to solve it? Not Uh, because of complacency, but because of just the potential of, a scandal? Yeah, so I've come to, you know, mature a little bit on that particular um, on that particular position. And when I left, I was really frustrated because they certainly had an attitude of indifference. Once they were out from under that lawsuit, uh, we just completely lost momentum with the um, with the progress that we had made in the case. And it was very disheartening for them to just really – be celebrating the fact that we've disproven the claims against the city, but now right. they don't have the resu- now they don't have the right. resolve to push it over the goal line. But now I've also come to recognize, because of all of the twists and turns and and uh, and, and problems that the that the case had had suffered, up been nearly impossible to prosecute. And I think that they recognized that too, and the DA yeah. was telling them that you know based on you've got Shug's baby mama confessing to the murder in collusion with Suge Knight and the shooter's dead. You've got a three person conspiracy and one of them is the baby mama of Suge Knight. How's that going right. to really play out? How will that play out in court? 
And she's got a proven track record of perjury. She's got like six different driver's licenses. And when you acquire wow. those, you sign a four, you know. And so her credibility would have been brought in question. And, you know, in a long, expensive trial, it would have been very difficult for a jury to say, we believe her beyond a shadow of a doubt. Right. Although you all were about to try to get a wiretap on Suge Knight. That's where and I get frustrated. And you might have gotten his yep. own words. That would have, you know, corroborated everything she told you. Absolutely. Um, but, and it is, it's kind of, uh, it's disheartening that the people who contracted the murder of Tupac and the murder of Biggie would be off scot-free more or less. Right. Uh, should not right. got legal problems galore, but... He's not serving time for murder. Not yet. Um, he'll certainly, he'll and, certainly never serve. Yeah, you're right. Right. But, um, you know, again, the book was just phenomenal. And as I said at the beginning, uh, the nature of drive-by shootings is impossible almost for any department to solve. It doesn't and matter I whether pre- it's New York, New Orleans. I mean, the nature is just you know, you don't get a lot of evidence. Yeah, and I appreciate you recognizing that and uh, even more so that you're saying it because that's a very astute insight. We, in Los Angeles, our gang crimes go almost 60% unsolved. And, uh-huh. you know, and the, a, a large majority of those are, in fact, drive-by shootings. Uh, they're very difficult because of this culture that we're speaking about where people just don't cooperate with police. And, uh yeah, so I appreciate you recognizing that because it is much more and difficult to solve these than we than we would you know, assume. Shouldn't should I have even said, even if I knew who did it, I'm not telling the cops. It's not my job. That's exactly what he said. And so that makes it, if the people that know something won't talk, how are police expected to? I'm very pro-police. I recognize when they do wrong. <laughs> I recognize when they do wrong, but I don't believe that because some have done wrong, all do wrong. Yeah, um, you know, we're a, hum- so, we're a human institution. We're a human institution. We're prone to human error. We have our bad apples just like any, anybody else. Correct. Um, correct. But, yeah, but to illustrate a little bit about what you just said about Suge Knight, he has said, it's not my job to solve these crimes. Even to, to, to illustrate that, we know for a fact that when that BMW pulled up to the stoplight and the white Cadillac with the assailants pulled up near, you know, aside them uh, as the shooting was about to start, Keefe D, the uncle of the shooter who's in the front seat, was a mm-hmm. childhood friend of Suge Knight's. They knew each other. They went to school together, played football together. They knew each other. Right. And they looked, they looked directly at each other. And Keefe D saw Suge Knight in the driver's seat, driver. Suge saw Keefe D in the passenger seat and knew immediately who had shot Tupac Shakur. Correct. And all he had to say that night, all he had to say was, Las Vegas Police Department, I looked right at Keefe D. He was in the car that did the shooting, and this whole thing would have been solved within 24 hours. Correct. That's, uh, that's absolutely correct. Was, now, did Suge not grow up in Crip territory? No, Suge Knight grew up in a blood okay, territory. He was blood. Okay. 
which is why the death row record entourage was comprised was of guys from that neighborhood. Okay, but he and he and Tifi didn't have the problems that most Crips and Bloods would have had. No, because Suge did not grow up as a gang member. He grew up in oh, the neighborhood okay. where there were just, gangs. Okay. Yeah, he was a he was, he was an adjacent. athlete. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but him and Keefe through school, they were childhood uh, friends. I'm, I am from New Orleans, and we are having, facing a lot of the things that are similar to things that were going on in Los Angeles in the 80s and 90s. We're facing that same type of, you know, culture and uh, uh, way of life. Right. That I just don't. I don't get it. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Maybe We're still I'm here. I'm 53 years old. Maybe that's why I don't get it. Well, uh, it, it, none of it, none of us, none of, regardless of age, none of us should get it. There should yeah. be no explanation. You know, there's there's no yeah. None of us should get it. it. Makes absolutely no sense why everybody's out there assassinating each other. Correct. Correct. But, uh, you know, again, I, I love the book, and uh, on the, the whole Torres debacle, i got to say, those defense attorneys have a lot of nerve because defense attorneys are expert at paraphrasing and spinning evidence to say what they want it to say when the actual evidence does not. Uh, that's absolutely 100% true, especially when you're a defense attorney and you're being paid millions of dollars by your client. Yeah. I, I think Torres, I mean, Torres spent some, somewhere between 15 and $20 million on his defense. And, you know, they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in getting yeah. their client off. And unfortunately, the, the, the U.S. attorney's tactical error, he should have called you to testify because you could have zipped that, nipped it in the bud on direct examination. Absolutely, that was very frustrating. Uh, it it was it was a debacle to the degree of like the uh, O.J. Simpson letting him try on that glove. You know, it's like give me a break. Correct, correct. That was Sean. Uh, yeah. uh, Lisa Sean has a question for Mr. Dorsey. Okay. All right, welcome back, Mr. Dorsey. Thank you. Is Ms. Mr. Dorsey, I was just uh, curious myself how you got involved with the whole Unsolved uh, series and, and how that came about uh, after you did your own documentary. Sure. Well, they, um, they re- uh, Kyle Long, the executive producer on the show, uh, he reached out to Greg and uh, was actually interested in, you know, Greg's book rights. Because um, anytime there's a literary source, that's kind of what Hollywood wants to go to. Um, so that it was really mainly through, through Greg that that, um, that that whole series came about. And then, uh, and then I got brought on board as a co-producer, um, largely just to help with all the authenticity and research and stuff like that. And I would have, you know, things on set to reference and, uh, sending photos and, and just tons and tons and tons of photos and imagery over to all the art department and costumers and casting people to make sure that everything was as accurate as possible. Um, and it's pretty wild because just about any moment in this film or in the series that was photographed or videoed at the time, they have recreated almost perfectly. So if there was oh, wow. any visual reference to go off of, they've reenacted that. That's amazing. That's really cool. 
Um, yeah. t- tell us what it airs and, 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 and all the information about it. Sure. It's, um, it airs on the USA Network, um, I believe, at uh, 10-9 Central on uh, February 27th is when it uh, premieres, and it'll be a 10-episode uh, limited series. So every week starting on February 27th. That is now, awesome. Mr. You know. Well, yeah. today, Sean, too, I think, and I, and I don't want to cut you off. I'll let you get right back to it, Sean. I just wanted to ask, uh, Mr. Dorsey, are the same group that's involved in this Unsolved, is this the same group sort of that uh, did the, the, uh, the O.J. Simpson uh, series? Yeah, it's, it's the, um, the same executive producer and uh, director uh, named Anthony Hemingway. Um, he was executive producer, and I think he directed at least half the episodes of uh, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, uh, American Crime Story. And uh, he came over and did the same exact thing on this one. So if you were a fan of People vs. O.J. Simpson, you're going to love Unsolved is really what it comes down to. Oh, that that's going to be amazing because I thought that was wonderfully yeah. done. And, Sean, I didn't mean to yeah, cut you so off, good. so go ahead. Oh, no, I was saying the same thing. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, you look at television and, you know, streaming services and everything that's going on now, what they're able to produce that, that you know, we couldn't have back in the 80s with the three major networks and what <laughs> right. table. And I absolutely love what's going on now uh, as far as production and being able to get everyone's ideas and everyone's stories out there. This This is amazing. I love this. Yeah. Yeah, we're really excited. And, you know, even even with everybody making um, so many series, it's still, you know, to get a, a scripted series greenlit and actually produced is incredibly hard to do. And uh, it's pretty amazing that, you know, how fast this came together once they contacted Greg and wanted to do it. It seems like it was like barely a year ago that this all kind of came together, and here we are a year later, and it's premiering. That's that is absolute, and I'm glad that uh, you, Mister Detective Kading, and and are all going to be a part of it. I mean, because I can't wait to watch it actually. And I want to ask both of y'all. Uh, not re- maybe it's getting away from the murders to a degree, but obviously the movie Notorious came out, and then All Eyes on Me came out, both uh, depicting the lives of Tupac. Knowing what you guys know, um, do it through your investigation and your research. Did you guys, by chance, catch either one of those films? And just kind of curious as what you thought about them. Uh, for me, I, I saw them both. Um, and I, you know, I'm not going to criticize anybody else's work. I don't, I'm not in a position to. I don't come from this industry. I'm just just now learning how difficult <laughs> all these projects actually are. And um, but you know, I think the the All Eyes on Me biopic. Um, wasn't really well received by a target audience. I don't know, you know, what the explanation for that is. I actually enjoyed it. Um, and then, of course, Notorious was great too. And uh, I actually, the that was Chael Coker, right, Mike? Notorious. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I mean, he's just one of my favorite directors. And so, you know, I really, really enjoyed that biopic. I thought they did a great job with Biggie, and and especially the guy that. Uh, played Biggie. So, um, they're two different projects, uh, outline, you know, the unsolved, what's kind of interesting about unsolved is that it's not a biopic, but at the same time, we really analyze the lives of both Biggie and Tupac in starting out with their friendship. And that's what has never been done before is that nobody's really shone a light on how close they were 
and how they were collaborating and, 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 you know, and then the idea that they could somehow become divided and then enemies and that betrayal that they sense, it's just, it's, it's such a tragic story. But it all really starts with this really intact and beautiful friendship. And I don't think anybody has ever looked at it from that perspective. And that's what we do in Unsolved while also, um, you know, shedding light on the investigations, the police investigations. So there's these three really interesting components all brought together in this 10-episode series that is different than anything that's been done before. Yep. So with and I do respect your your you know answers on that. I just I've never seen either one of them. Uh, I guess I've just never had the desire to see them either. So I just wanted your opinion on them. Uh, our producer Michael Carnahan had watched them, or at least had watched All Eyes on Me, and he kind of said that it didn't go as well as he had hoped it would, and it was a little longer than what he had anticipated. So. You know, but like I said, I'm not, in, you know, doing radio and doing the podcast, I'm, I'm, I don't make it a point to criticize any project that anybody has going on because, you know, it, it's it's tough to do stuff like this and what you two have done with the book and the documentary, um, just trying to feed information in an entertaining way to captivate an audience for the intended amount of time, I think both of you guys have done a wonderful job doing that. Uh, I think Sean would agree. And, uh, you know, obviously Lisa having read the book said she couldn't put it down. So, you know, uh, my hat's off to both of you gentlemen for, for what you were able to do as well. Well, we certainly appreciate that. And I know I can speak for Mike and while we're patting ourselves on the back, I'd just like to uh, also point out that starting tomorrow night on BET, uh, Mike and I had the opportunity to get involved in another similar project that illuminates the history of Death Row Records. And it's a three-episode, two-hour-per-episode series tomorrow night on BET. And you're going to learn a lot about the murders of Tupac Shakur, especially uh, in Biggie Smalls, in that series also. So I would recommend anybody who's a true crime um, uh aficionado or interested in LA culture or the music scene or in hip hop and all of that stuff to, to pay attention to that series. It was incredibly well done. And uh, me and Mike had the, you know, the opportunity to kind of assist with that. Well, Mr. Dorsey, can I, if, if you don't mind uh, getting off the subject for just a second, um, I do a, a paranormal show. Uh, on this on this station, and I yeah. was really curious. I was really curious this this demon house that you've played a part in with <laughs> Zach Baggins. Um, that looks very interesting. Is there any way I could talk to you off the air at some point about possibly coming on and talking about that? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Right. Yeah, I came. Appreciate that. that. I didn't want to. Um, I came. That's okay. I came onto that project late. Um, I did. I basically uh, re-edited the film and uh, and kind of fixed it, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, let's talk about it. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate that. Like I said I just was going through your uh, your profile here on IMDb, and uh, I like the fact you were born in '78. That's a great year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a kid. 
Right. Just a kid mm-hmm. who turns 40 in six months, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. So, Mr. Dor- you've done a documentary about this subject on your own. Did you want to go ahead and, and talk more about that right now, or do you want people to wait till they see the Unsolved? No, let's talk about it, because, you know, Unsolved covers, um, you know, way more ground than even Murder Rap did. Um, so I'm... I, 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 I love talking about the documentary. All right. All right. Yeah. I watched it earlier today and you know, the information was just awesome. I mean, things like, you know, you guys were saying earlier, as far as what people don't know about this situation, you put all that information out there and, and you know, of course all the suspects, can we talk about the suspects that were uh, introduced in the documentary? Um, sure. I mean, you have, uh, um, on the Tupac murder side, you have a gang called the Southside Crips, uh, who at the time, one of their shot, alleged shot callers was a guy named TPD, <clears throat> and uh, his nephew, Orlando Anderson, who he alleges is the, the one who shot Tupac. And uh, just two hours before Tupac was shot, Orlando Anderson um, was involved in a fight with Tupac and Suge Knight and the rest of their death or entourage uh, at the MGM. So, uh it always, I think, uh, suspicion was always kind of cast in that direction, that that was a pretty big coincidence that Tupac stepped to uh, a known gang member and punched him in the face, and two hours later, uh, Tupac is dead in what, you know, very clearly resembled a gang shooting, uh, you know, your standard drive-by. So I think those guys were on the radar all the time from the very beginning, and then likewise, I think a lot of people, probably back then, assumed that Suge probably, you know, retaliated by having someone go after Big. So I think one of the wild things about murder rap is it's kind of almost what you always thought happened, but there's so much more depth to it behind that than what people realize. Exactly. Exactly what I was touching on right there. Um, and then again, towards the end, when you make the ultimate conclusions and everything, it's, it's not unsolved. I mean, you guys know who committed these crimes, but, you know, the tragedy of it all is that it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get a prosecution in this case, correct? Yeah, I'll let Greg talk on that. Yeah, as I explained earlier, you know, we've just lost too much time, too much information, too many witnesses are no longer available to practically prosecute these cases. The shooters in both of these murders are dead. One died in 98. And, you know, the guy who shot and killed Tupac Shakur died in 1998. The guy who shot and killed Biggie died in 2002, both gang-related murders. Um, and so you got the shooters dead, and most of the co-conspirators are dead, and it's just become a situation where um, trying to put this thing on trial or bring it to light in a court of law it's just uh it's not even feasible. So will there be an actual conclusion where a case is actually closed? Well, there is a there's a mechanism for that to happen within both the LAPD and the Las Vegas PD and it's called clearing it other and that means when all practical for all practical, you know, intent and purpose, uh they're they're unprosecutable, but the departments are convinced enough that the facts they have clear the case. Um, but because of all the controversy that's been lodged at these departments and all the criticism that's been 
uh, posed against these departments. They're very reluctant to clear the high-profile cases saying, hey, we know what happened and no one's going to jail because that's just going to bring more negative attention on them. And so I don't really know. I, I suspect, and I think Mike will concur, that after what's about to happen in the next 10 you know, 10 days with uh, this Death Row Chronicles and perhaps what happens after our series airs, um, there may be a lot more pressure put on Las Vegas uh, to do something uh, because all the facts are there. They're staring them in the face, and there's absolutely no reason whatsoever not to publicly clear these cases. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to go back to the Tupac murder Um you know, in your documentary, and obviously that's based off that off uh, Detective Kading's book. Uh, you know, do you do you believe that the that that Puff Daddy or P Diddy, whatever the heck his name is now, uh, Sean Combs, do you do you believe that he orchestrated um, the hit basically on Tupac Shakur? Mike, I'll go ahead and answer that because I, yeah, I, I think I'll be a little bit more direct about it. Um, I absolutely think that he had involvement, but that statement comes with a caveat. There were some very important nuances to understand about his involvement, and that is that Suge Knight was very, very serious about hunting Puffy Combs down. Puffy Combs knew he had a target on his back. Puffy Combs knew that Suge would do whatever he had to do to get at him. You know, people had, blood had already been spilt. People had already been killed, and these guys were literally um, at war with one another. And so when Sean Combs, out of desperation, makes a statement to, uh, uh, to Keefe D., who was in the car the night that they shot and killed Tupac Shakur, and he makes a statement that, hey, you know, I'll do anything for these guys' heads. Well, that's interpreted by that gang member as go out and kill him. And so that's what they did. But to Sean Combs' position, he's a guy whose life is in danger. He makes a a, a statement, whether it was boasting, whether it's exaggerated, or whether it was intentional. We'll never know. But a statement's made, and Tupac Shakur gets killed. With that in mind, the guy who shot and killed Tupac Shakur, Lando Anderson, is the one that Tupac Shakur just punched in the face and publicly humiliated. Now, that individual is going to go kill Tupac Shakur regardless of any conversation that his uncle and Puffy Combs have. He's going to do that on principle. He's a gang member, and he has to do this to save face. So that murder is going to take place regardless, or the shooting is going to take place regardless. But when you also understand that there's this component to it where Puffy Combs had these crips working for him to protect them from Suge Knight, and then a shoot, you know, a fight goes down, a shooting goes down, involving Suge Knight's people and these Crips. It all just, it, it, it's just a, a broad story that becomes very clear. Right, and uh, just a quick question as well. Now, uh, who was in the vehicle again with uh, Christopher Wallace when he was shot? With Christopher Wallace, Biggie Smalls, it was a lone gunman. It was an associate of Suge Knight's named Wardell Faust. He went by the gang name of Poochie. That was the individual that Suge had commissioned to do the killing of Biggie. In Tupac Shakur's case, the white Cadillac in Las Vegas, there were four individuals in the car. Orlando Anderson, the one that Tupac punched. 
his uncle, Keefe D., who confessed to the murder, and a driver named Terrence Brown, and another passenger named DeAndre Smith. They were all Southside Crips. Okay, because, you know, the, it had been raised. Where was uh, uh, Lisa's, Lisa O'Brien wants to ask a few questions, so I'll bring her on, uh, but I just want to ask this other question. Where was uh, Sean Combs the night that uh, Tupac was killed? Or and Biggie. He's in, it, he, was in, he was in New York. So he, he was, was, he was in Las no, Vegas. Okay, because I knew I knew there was a, a mention of on the in the documentary that I watched uh, that there was two separate instances where I believe it was a million dollars was thrown around once out in the open, and then supposedly there was a, a private meeting that was corroborated by a key a couple of witnesses between Sean Combs and and uh, Keefe D, but they don't know what actually Correct. was said other than what Keefe D. Admitted that, that Puffy told him, hey, I'll give you a million dollars to get rid of him? Correct. Okay. That's all correct. All right. Well, we're going to bring Lisa back in uh, right now. Lisa, go ahead. you have some questions? Hey, first of all, um, as I recall, Sean Combs was in another vehicle in a caravan with Biggie on the night of the shooting. He wasn't You're in the same about- vehicle with Biggie. He was in. Yeah, he was in the same in the caravan. That, that that's was right. Just a, Brad's question. Yeah. Well, just for clarification, he asked about Tupac's murder, and I was saying oh, that. Oh, okay. I, I apologize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I misunderstood, Brad. Um. So uh, one of the questions that I had, uh, just your own personal belief, do you think Sean Combs has cleaned up his life as much as it appears? That he's done because he seems to be living on the straight and narrow, and he's been incredibly successful. Yeah, and I, I would like to hear from Mike too. I would just I would just say that the Sean Combs of 2018 does not resemble the Cheyenne Combs of 1996 and 1997. Right. they're different people. He was much younger, uh, much more reckless, and surrounded by much more you know shadier characters. So. Um, it's a it's a different guy and I think he's learned through you know through through his mistakes how to avoid those pitfalls again so um, yeah I think that he's done done a good job of keeping unlike Suge Knight you know you kind of contrast these two guys and uh, yeah but I'd like to hear what Mike has to say yeah I I agree with that totally I think he's um, you know he's the richest guy in hip-hop now in the entire hip-hop world uh you know he's on on the fast track probably to be the first uh billionaire in his industry as a you know hip-hop artist and um like greg said he's just around he's around a different group now than he was around you know 20 25 years ago yeah and And nobody's uh, trying to kill him yeah and nobody you know is probably trying to kill him except you know the usual like the occasional like crazy stalker types you know Correct. And the other impression I got from the book uh, as well was if he had anything to do with Tupac's death, it he didn't have the real intent contrasted with Suge Knight who said, go out and kill Biggie Smalls. You know, the intent uh, I, wasn't really there on Combs' part. I, I, I uh, think to... 
to really appreciate that you have to understand his predicament. And we'll never know how deep that intent was with him. You know, only he knows that. Um, but certainly he was desperate and desperate for a good reason. And that doesn't justify, you know, you know, doing a, you know, it doesn't justify um, those actions. But I think it does help all of us to understand if we were in harm's way and we're desperate, we might do something uh, that we regret right. later. Right. I think that's what that's the impression I got from uh, from the information that you you learned mm-hmm. uh, during the investigation. And you know, again, the the structure. If they had let you go and keep going. I think you might have been able to close it, both of them, and everybody would have been satisfied. No doubt in my mind. I, I, that's because the most frustrating thing. You would have put to bed the the corruption and LAPD police involvement. You would have, you know, exposed the people who maybe contracted what to happen, and you would have identified the people who pulled the trigger. Which and we did all of that. None of that. You did all that, but you couldn't do it in a better, uh, an official right. way. You had to do it through Correct. your book and a documentary mm-hmm. and now a TV miniseries, which I cannot wait to see. <laughs> You're going to love it. I yeah. just... You're- you know, again, I, I don't want to fangirl you, but that's a wonder, a great book, really Thank great. Thank you very I, much. I, in fact, downloaded the other book, but I'm probably not going to read it because your book yeah. is the definitive source. Yeah, that book, you know, with you know, with, with I, I'm assuming you're talking about Labyrinth. Um, yes, I did. I wasn't gonna say any. I wasn't gonna, you know, <laughs> publicly out it. I get it. Uh, <laughs> I was trying but, to be tactful. <laughs> listen, there's no. I mean, honestly, unless you want to just fill your head with speculation and theory and innuendo, uh, I wouldn't recommend it because that's all it is, and everything uh, in it's been refuted and disproven. But I do want to suggest this to you if you're gonna take the time. You need to watch Murder Rap because if you liked my book, you're going to love this because it brings the book yes. to life. I I am one of those weirdos who has to read the book before she can watch the movie. Gotcha. I, not the other way around. Um, so and, uh, good luck with Game of Thrones. <laughs> no, I don't do Game of Thrones. I don't do Walking Dead either. Uh, but... Uh, was I gonna? Uh, oh, I'm a paralegal, so I don't do speculation and innuendo, and I'm like Judge Judy. If it doesn't make sense, it probably isn't true. Right. So I'm a tough audience. <laughs> okay. And that's what I liked about your book. It was you could tell it was factual. It wasn't speculation, and where where you did try to assign a motive or, or explain uh, an intent, you made it clear that that's what you were doing just based on common sense. And so enough fangirl. 
<laughs> right. Well, well thanks, I, thanks. Thanks. Well, what I was going to ask is, uh, what's he saying? Well, what I was going to ask uh, both Detective Kading and, and and Michael Dorsey, just kind of um, mixing it up just a, a little bit with the the. Let's say these two murders had never happened. Can you give any speculation on the landscape of these two? And, you know, obviously there was a big battle, but let's say this had never happened. Can you kind of give your opinion of what maybe the landscape would look like had these two murders not happened? Yeah, I mean, I think that eventually those two artists, uh, Tupac and Biggie, would have uh, reconciled. You know, I don't know how much long, how, how long that would have taken, but I think eventually they would have come around. Uh, and I think that, you know, either one of them would be up there today with, you know, Jay-Z and Puffy and all the, their other contemporaries from that era that are now, you know, worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Tupac especially had huge aspirations beyond just his music career. And, you know, he was, of course, already a famous actor, but he also wanted to, you know, make his own movies. So I, I really think, you know, assuming that he could, uh, you know, stay out of the legal problems he kept kind of getting himself into, um, uh, yeah, I think they both would be at that, you know, that Jay-Z kind of uh, elite level now as far as their careers and, and their uh, their fortunes are concerned. But on the flip side, had, you know, had Tupac survived that night, there's a good chance that he would have violated his parole by getting into that fight with Orlando Anderson just as Suge did and, you know, likely would have uh, been sent back to prison to finish out his term. But, you know, who knows, maybe that would have been the extra push he needed to finally kind of get that part of his life behind him. And, and the reason I asked that, because obviously we know that the, the albums that came out uh, you know, there were so many albums. In fact, you know, there was a big conspiracy. I mean, if you don't mind talking about that for just a minute, the conspiracy theory sure. that a around um, Tupac still being alive. Obviously, they uh, creatively uh, ish, uh, came out with Machiavelli uh, right after his death, which we all know Machiavelli, the famous uh, guy for faking his own death. Um, and, you know, the conspiracy theories that are about that. How much, I guess in, in a way, how much should I stick to the facts and whatnot? Do y'all have any kind of roadblock or Anything to do with all the conspiracy theories that were out uh, surrounding Tupac's death? And I know there's been some lyrics in a song that supposedly he says that he would have only known what to say had, had he been around at the time. I mean, can you tell those for just a minute? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's just, you know, uh, a certain segment of the fan population out there just, you know, grasping uh, for anything, you know, any hope that maybe he really survived. Um, just the execution of faking your own death in the way that they alleged that he did is virtually impossible. I mean, <laughs> the idea that, A, he would find a body that looked exactly like him, gave that to the coroner. Coroners fingerprint bodies when they come in. They don't just take people's word for it that that's who it is. The idea that they would have had to have paid off all these doctors – and police officers, um, the fact that someone as outspoken as he is with so many plans he had for his life would literally just walk away from all of that uh, forever and remain silent for the past 21 years. 
uh, even, you know, when his own mother died. Uh, I find all that uh, absolutely impossible to uh, to believe, and there's there's no really no great evidence of it. And on top of that, you you have a, a, that that infamous photo of him, you know, from the autopsy, uh, for which there was an investigation at the Las Vegas coroner, and for which someone was found, uh, you know, who the person who went in and snapped that photo, and that person was reprimanded. So you know you don't do that if that photo is fake, or if that's you know. Uh, on, on you know a a body double, so it's just right. uh, it's kind of like science fiction stuff. I just I find it really hard to take seriously when you give it real you know hard thought. I, I'd right. like to just add to that too that uh, you know if you have a foredrawn conclusion and you know you you you've already made a decision about something, then you're just going to interpret it. You're going to interpret information in order to support that foregone conclusion and that's what people do with that but it's mostly kids without very good reasoning capabilities and the other you know thing that's you know kind of interesting about the whole idea um in light of the fact we have all the evidence to disprove it i think people struggle with the idea that an icon like tupac shakur somebody who has so much potential and has already done so much by the time he's 25 i think it 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 they can't accept the fact that some two-bit, no-named gangster from Compton, California, could just come along and wipe out all those hopes and dreams. I think that's that's where people struggle. That somebody that important can be wiped out by somebody so irrelevant. Right. Well, let me ask you this: In modern times, obviously, it's being 2018. Do you think that that what happened in 1996 and 97 could that easily be done today, or are we in a different time with social media and things of that nature that it would be a little harder? I mean, obviously, gang violence is still prevalent uh, throughout the United States, maybe not as noticeable as it once was. I know down here in Arkansas, they've enacted stricter laws as far as you know you used to you would see the gang graffiti and the different colors being worn around and i know now that made it more difficult to represent your uh gang that you're affiliated with because of the laws but obviously they still in existence but do you think this is possible today like as it happened then or would it be a little bit harder now or or is it just moved away from that that mentality that style or uh, well, rappers are rappers are still getting shot and killed, you know, at, at all levels. At the superstar level, like they were at, maybe not necessarily. Um, but I think the thing that set theirs apart uh, was that it wasn't just a rap rivalry, which happens all the time. It was a rap rivalry with gang members on both sides involved, and that's when a war of words transforms into you know actual action on those words. I would agree with Mike that those things are still, you know, we're still susceptible to those things happening. But I would say that the the uh, consequences would be much different today because of technology. Technology would have, if today, would greatly aid law enforcement where back then they right. wouldn't have. You know, we have cameras all over the place now and abilities to track cars. You know, there's a lot more at our disposal today that would have, probably led to um, a resolution in the case that we didn't right. have back then. 
Well, now the car that allegedly now let me please help me get this right. The white uh, Cadillac that was involved in the was it the Tupac murder? Yeah. Yes. That. Now that was a rental, correct? Correct. So with today's technology, you probably have like a LoJack system on that, so they would be able to actually put that vehicle at that spot at that time. So, I mean, is that the correlation between what you're talking about with technology? Well, we would have had better, there would have been much better surveillance cameras at the casinos. There would have been, you know, parking lot cameras when they went and parked, probably security, better security cameras at the 662 club where the car goes in and, you know, when they first tried to find Tupac and, you know, traffic cameras and all of those type of things um, would have, you know, given the law enforcement the, the the information they needed to follow up. And so they would have had a license plate, you know, somewhere coming through, you know, the border from Arizona to California. They would have had, hey, pull all the white Cadillacs up and track it down. So we just didn't have the technology back then to be that efficient. Yeah, and to Greg's point earlier, too, about cameras being everywhere now, you know, you think about all the people that were in Tupac and Shug's entourage, like, you know, those girls that were riding alongside them. Now, you know, at least one of those girls would have been filming that encounter with her cell phone and could have possibly captured the whole murder on video just because of that or someone else, you know, in that entourage filming um, this, you know, huge scene that they were making. So, yeah, I and think it's much more media. likely that you would not, you know, and social media, yeah, people talking about it. Yeah. I mean, we uh, have people yeah, on social yeah. People, people right now on social media that were directly related to our assailants are on their, you know, their Facebook pages and their Twitter accounts talking about, you know, hey, my Orlando Anderson stood down and did handled his, you know, this type of stuff. And back then we didn't have that type of exposure to, um, to these clues that would have greatly assisted too, because these people can't keep their mouths shut when it comes to bragging about what they've done. Right. Uh so you mentioned obviously the the tight lipped uh, gang members. You know, obviously you don't, being a narc, a snitch, whatever. You know, that's that's uh, right. There's a death sentence in itself in the gang environment. Um, you know, and then the lack of information and, and eyewitnesses or accounts or whatever. What what were some other contributing roadblocks that you found in your initial investigation? and the investigation moving forward? Well, one of the primary roadblocks in regard to the Tupac Shakur murder, and this was, this was a major roadblock, was that Las Vegas PD found out that Death Row Records was hiring off-duty and former law enforcement um, members to, to take care of their, uh, um, their protective services, their, their security. And... You know, Compton PD was uh, uh, didn't have a very good reputation. It had corruption issues and allegations against it. And guys that were working for Compton PD are now working for death row as security officers. And so for Las Vegas to need the cooperation of death row records, because those are your witnesses in Tupac's murder, essentially, are now having to contend with the fact, well, members of that police department are actually working for death row. And so it 
it creates this huge conflict of interest where they don't know, can we share information? Is that just going to be leaked to the assailants and to the suspects? And, and uh, so there was this huge issue for Las Vegas that they had to try to overcome in regard to investigating death row and getting cooperation with death row because of these compromised cops. Yeah, I mean, hey, it's just really, you know, going back and, and thinking about uh, your, the documentary that just, you know, obviously the, the characters that you're dealing with, I mean, the fact that you got any information out of any of them, to me, is absolutely amazing, to be honest with you. Uh, when, uh, now, Detective Katie, you said you mentioned uh, that you guys are, are uh, the police department and the investigation team had built a case involving narcotics against Keefe D, and you kind of use that as, as a leverage point to to get him to start talking, um, how how receptive to that was he initially when you first kind of started asking him questions and presented him with you know this bargaining chip, I guess. Well, he was uh, you know obviously when we told him that we had all this evidence against him, uh, he wasn't just going to accept our word for it. So we told him you know contact your attorney come meet us down at the U.S. Attorney's Office, let the two attorneys uh, discuss what we have and what we've done, and then uh, your attorney can give you advice. And that's exactly what happened. So once his attorney realized the evidence that we had against him and the case we had against him, um, he explained that to Keefe D. He said, you're, you know, you're up the river without a paddle. If you don't cooperate with these people, you're definitely going to prison for the rest of your life. And uh, once he realized that that's what we had, he didn't have really, you know, he didn't have much choice. He either cooperate or say goodbye forever. Well, let me, let me ask you this and, and uh, maybe Mr. Dorsey can, can chime in as well. Uh, you know, obviously um, the sentiment around a lot of society now in regards to the police, I'm definitely pro police. Police is pro police, but I wanted to ask this as well. Um, when you approach him with this bargaining uh, chip that this case against him, obviously you base this around a ton of facts, a ton of evidence. Uh, so he's obviously guilty, but you know, there is that, that, especially today's society, that niche of people that go, well, the only reason that uh, he's cooperating is because y'all are forcing him, da da da, this, that, and the other. Um, you know, what? How do you count? I mean, obviously, you know that the mountain of evidence, factual evidence, but let's be honest, there's a large population in society that you can throw evidence out the window. It doesn't matter if it doesn't fit what they want to believe or this, you know, agenda against whoever. How do you combat that? And the argument people go, we all, you know, in a sense, in their opinion, I guess, blackmailed into this condition. I mean, how do you, is there, what, do you even care about that? Um, well, obviously I care about people's perception, but I don't care about um, their, you know, I don't care about the conclusions they draw if they aren't willing to understand the circumstances at play. Now, Keefe D understands he either tells the truth, he's compelled to tell the truth. If he lies, that works against him. And, of course, we're going to take whatever he has to say, and we have to go corroborate it. We're going to prove whether it's true or if it's a lie. It doesn't benefit him in any way, shape, or form 
to lie under these circumstances. And then for him to lie against the, you know, one, his own relative, you know, he has no motivation to do that unless it's true. You know, he right. could have said it's this person or that person. And so you look at this from a, you know, kind of a circum, you know, from different angles and you realize that uh, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to conclude that he lied or that he was just playing us. Now, we're smarter than that. You know, our whole thing was to get to the truth and we put him into a corner which would force him to tell the truth unless he wanted to go to prison for the rest of his life. And I have to add this, it wasn't just about him. We had wiretap evidence and narcotic evidence against other members of his family. And they were going to go to prison if he lied. So he was under, you know, it was either to tell the truth or we're all screwed. And, and we would have figured out one way or the other whether he was telling the truth. And, of course, we corroborated it all. And he knew things that nobody could, be, could know unless he was there. And that's another very compelling bit of information is that the things that he was telling us, a person could not know unless they had actually been there at the crime scene. So, and so in, in after getting this information, um, is there anyone you, you said that Orlando and, and the other gentlemen are now no longer with us. Um, is there anyone that's that you can go after and prosecute for this, or or do are you satisfied with the fact that the the because according to the documentary, um, Orlando leaned over the passenger closest to the vehicle that Tupac and them they were in and fired the trigger into Tupac's vehicle. There's there's basically the Tupac murder in all honesty, is is basically wrapped up, correct? It's wrapped up. It's completely wrapped up. Um, you know, the person who provided the gun uh, that was used that night is dead. The person in the back seat with Orlando Anderson that he leaned over is dead. The driver is dead. The shooter is dead. The only person left standing in that car, left seated in that car, is Keefe D, who is the one who's cooperating and providing this information. So, you know, it's it's a wrap. Um, you know, and there's different ways to look at this. You know, justice has not been served or has street justice been served. You know, the Orlando Anderson dies in a violent shootout. T. Brown, the driver, dies in a violent shootout. The guy who provided the gun, you know, you know falls away from cancer. Or the other passenger in the back seat dies shortly thereafter from, you know, from, uh, um, from health issues. So, you know, what's more just than having everybody be dead? I mean, it's basically a death sentence served out without the state involvement. <laughs> That's I, and I did of. not realize that that they had all that for a majority of them had had were actually you know had had are now deceased. I did not really. Uh, fully understand that. That's that's interesting. But obviously, when you live that lifestyle, that's the that's the inherent risk that you take on a daily basis. I mean, you're a you're a walking target at any point you decide to leave the the house or, or you know your close associates. Uh, what can you speak on like the grounds right now that of Keefe D as far as is he in some kind of protection? 
program or anything having turned, you know, I guess state's witness? KPD is, uh, he's alive. He's not well. He supposedly is, um, has cancer. And, uh, um, again, I encourage everybody, this is related, so I encourage everybody to watch this BET special that starts tomorrow night. You're going to learn a lot about KPD. And uh, it's, it'll answer the questions you just asked about where he's at now and what he's doing. Okay, absolutely. And you go ahead and give some detail on that, too, if you want to tell everybody when that air comes on and what time. And uh, I don't have the time. It's tomorrow evening sometime. Just It's on BET. It's a three-episode, two hours per episode, little mini-series, documentary style. It's uh, um, Tuesday through Thursday this week. On BET, it's called Death Row Chronicles, and uh, it was produced by E1 Entertainment, and uh, it's 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 going to be remarkable. That uh, a lot of a lot of the um, content is directly related to the murder of Tupac Shakur, especially towards the last episode. Right, you're going to hear uh, well, from sure. himself. Oh wow, that'll be interesting for sure. So I encourage everyone listening to check that out as well and gentlemen it's been great having you guys on i know that uh you guys have other things to do and it's getting later in the evening obviously it's you know uh 9:21 here on the central standard time so i know one for, for well, the like hey hey well it's 7:30 in <laughs> california Big deal. They, might <laughs> they might have dinner plans or something you know <laughs> But, uh, you know, we appreciate you coming on. Um, Be sure to check it out on the USA Network entitled uh, Unsolved. That's going to premiere February 27th by the book, uh, Detective Kading. Uh, Go ahead and let you uh, plug anything that you have going on. Uh, Again, want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. So we'll start with you, Detective Kading, and then we'll we'll finish with, with Mr. Dorsey. But go ahead and... Where can people get the book or any other project that you're involved in, sir? Yeah, the the book is out there, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can get an e you know an e version of it if you just want to download it to your you know to a reader. It's called Murder Rap. Um, but even though I, I promote my book, I highly promote Mike Dorsey's version of the book, which is the documentary Murder Rap. Uh, it's it, it does a better job explaining things, and I think it's more vivid. And people will really, really appreciate what he did with that documentary. So don't buy the book if you can buy the documentary. <laughs> yeah, and you, can, and you can get the documentary on uh, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime right now. If you get Amazon Prime, you can stream it for free. Um, it's Best Buy, Walmart. It's on all the major retailers. Well, I, Detective Kading and Michael Dorsey, if you can hear me, uh, you broke up a little bit. Uh, go, uh, Mr. Dorsey, are you with us? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, go ahead and, and if you here. would, kind of repeat what you said. I I do apologize, yeah, sure. Tyler. We're I, we're in a weird weather pattern around here, so the yeah. our uh, internet connection is is somewhat ridiculous at the moment. <laughs> That's okay. We're having a big windstorm here in Los Angeles now, too, so it's kind of, I think, on both ends here. Um, the Murder Rap documentary you can find on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Amazon. Uh, if you subscribe to Amazon Prime, you can stream it for free. 
right now, um, and it's on, uh, you know, it's at Best Buy and Walmart and all those, all the major retailers. So you can find Murder Rap everywhere. And I encourage anyone and everyone to to, to watch it. Uh, if you don't know anything about the case, uh, you'll definitely come away with a wealth of knowledge. Uh, I appreciate Detective Kading for taking the time uh, to do the book, and obviously uh, for you, Mr. Dorsey, to bring it to life uh, in a visual um, form format. So, well, again, we appreciate you guys for coming on. Um, Definitely going to be in touch. If you guys have any future projects that you want to talk about or discuss, definitely uh, we have the, the venue for you to do that, and we will welcome you guys at any time if you want to message us about any project or upcoming book, documentary, research, whatever it is. Uh, feel free to ask, and, and we will definitely oblige us. I appreciate all of the, the efforts it took to, for you guys to come on tonight. I definitely understand that you both are busy. And so, again, appreciate yeah. your book, appreciate the documentary, and appreciate your time, first and foremost. Sounds good. Yeah, Thanks our, for having us on. Yep, our pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Good night. And so that was Detective Kading and Michael Dorsey, Detective Kading writing the book Murder Rap, uh, Michael Dorsey uh, doing the documentary Murder Rap, and we appreciate them coming on. Uh, Lisa, I, I'm telling you right now, I, I haven't you read the book. Um, yeah. I watched the documentary, and I'm telling you right now, I was so overloaded with the information that was available uh, that, that Mr. Dorsey put out there, uh, all based on the book that you read by Detective Kading. It blew my mind, honestly, and put this whole uh, murder uh, of both Tupac and the B.I.G. In, in perspective as far as what what had happened. Uh, you know, I had honestly kind of lost track of it, and some of the new developments that I discovered, the Keefe D situation and, and having the Tupac murder all but solved was very fascinating to me. It, it was. And, you know, I had read the uh, allegations that Suge Knight uh, was involved because Tupac was going to leave Death Row and he was going to be a famous, you know, movie star and forget about Suge Knight. And I read the LAPD allegations over the years, and that was one of the things that I appreciated so much about Detective Kading's book is everything that he built made sense, and it was consistent and corroborated. And as I said, it's one of the best true crime books I have ever read, and I've been reading them for over 40 years. So... um it was, and this makes sense. It doesn't require a lot of gymnastics and uh, suspending belief that Suge Knight would murder Tupac Shakur because he was doing movies. I mean, that's basically, that was one of the theories. And well, yeah, that uh, it's was just a... a shame that, it's a shame that nobody's going to be tried and, and this isn't going to be a part of the public criminal justice record because but, of the way but, LAPD just didn't want to follow through. Well, and I think it depends on how you look at it to a degree. I think that Detective Kading made a, a good point that maybe the system uh, was 
spared any tax dollars and that natural selection and natural justice took over. And in that regard, I'm happy with it. I'm okay with that because regardless of who the guy was, who Tupac was or what he represented or the lifestyle that he lived, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that neither one of those guys uh, uh, deserved what they got. Absolutely yeah. no way does anybody deserve to be murdered, nefarious or not, you know, shady, you know, whatever. I don't think that any of, none of this, I think you lost two great careers and, and who knows, like Mr. Dorsey said, Lisa, you know, these two guys could have teamed up and, and started a movement and, and, you know, maybe, just maybe, they solve problems that we have now, you know, with because there's a lot of divide in this country. And right. Maybe they, were the, maybe they were the force that could have brought it together and, hey, you know, we unified our issues. Let's let's move forward. I mean, I know that Tupac was big into the civil rights and some of his music. Um, so who knows what could have been, you know, could have been made possible. Uh, well, I guess we'll never right. know. You know, it'd be speculation and, yeah, at this point. But and that's that's the saddest part is, uh, you know, I Tupac, he was involved directly in the incident with Orlando Anderson, but poor Biggie was just collateral damage because aside from his feud with Tupac, he didn't really do anything to anybody. But Shug Knight wanted to take away Puffy's great star the way Puffy, he believed Puffy took his away. I mean, that's what I it think, boils down to. And, and um, no, it's a shame that we don't have either one of the guests on right now because that would have been a question. <laughs> I don't know, though, Lisa, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know if it was necessarily Suge Knight wanting to take Puffy Combs is big star up out of the picture. I think you're on to something that's collateral damage. I think what you saw with the notorious B.I.G. murder was a rival gang gang taking um, revenge, retaliatory action against this other gang member, uh, the other gang's um, you know action. And I think, like you said, I think Tupac. And another thing, too, the factors in on this is that, you know, you look at what Tupac and, and, and Christopher Wallace did, you know, the Biggie Smalls did. They were young. I mean, these guys were yeah. in their 20s, and they were mega millionaires, and they had women, and they had drugs and alcohol and parties and fights, and they knew everybody. You know, Tupac, right. they were all friends with Mike Tyson. They were going to fights. I mean, Crap, I would have loved to have been able to just drive from the West Coast, East Coast, to Vegas for a fight and living it up in a hotel and going out and partying and having all these mm-hmm. women. And, you know, I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lifestyle that nobody's really going to understand. And then when you introduce that to someone at the at a young age and then you have the influences of Suge Knight. And, you know, I, you know, if you watch some of the Death Row stuff, um, Dr. Dre leaving Death Row, you know, Snoop and all those. Death Row, uh-huh. Suge Knight took advantage of a lot of artists, and yeah. um, he most you know a lot of them did. left, and and Tupac got smart and was leaving, and I don't think Suge Knight had anything to do with it. I think honestly it came down to 
Suge, well, like they say, and I think Suge went after, you know, had the bad boy entertainment and death row at each other. And it was about, and honestly, Suge Knight's a very uh, demon yeah. as person. Well, the guy's got well, no good intentions whatsoever. The reason I say that Suge Knight targeted Biggie was because the way the the way things went down, uh, Sean Combs got into the first vehicle. Biggie got into the second vehicle, and it was the second vehicle that was targeted. And the person who did the shooting had to have been staking out that location and watching people going in and out. So when he targeted the second vehicle, he knew he wasn't targeting Sean Combs. He knew he was targeting Biggie Smalls or Christopher Wallace. That's just my interpretation, again, because with the information that Detective Kading, you know, provided as to how the shootings went down on both cases, uh, it was, I think Biggie was targeted. I don't think that the shooter got the wrong car and that it was a mistake. Right, absolutely. So, well, that, Lisa, that's why I say, you know, it was it was retaliatory, but Suge Knight wasn't going to hit Sean. He was going to hit Christopher to get at right. Sean. Right. Well, Lisa, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up the 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 Tupac deal and uh, the the Biggie Smalls deal, and uh, get on a little bit more serious note. Obviously, let's tell everybody what's going to happen. Uh, we want to thank the listening audience for the last couple of weeks, months of listening to the Pulse, the American Idiot Show. Um, as with all things in radio and podcasting, we've made some changes. Um, Sean is no longer going to be with us anymore, Lisa. As we probably aren't even going to do this. This is the final show for the Pulse. Now we're not going anywhere. We're just going to rebrand a tad bit. Um, Sean is going to be hosting a liberal, progressive-type show on Sundays called On the Real with Micah Qualls. Uh, I encourage everyone to listen to that. I believe it's 5 to 7 on Sundays. Uh, Lisa, you're, you're in works for a, a true crime show. and uh, what, Can you give a little bit of details on that? Well, the show is called Clear and Convincing. And what I want to do is look at a lot of controversial and or notorious cases uh, that have had a lot of media coverage and some that haven't had a lot of media coverage and look at them from the perspective of the courts, Uh, how the courts are going to look at direct appeal, uh, arguments and, and grounds presented, and kind of explain why the courts did not handle the cases the way people in the court of public opinion, believe they should have been handled. And uh, I think listeners will learn things about the criminal justice system uh, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of of how that works. And they'll also learn something about cases that they may have never heard before, as with the West Memphis Three case. Right, and and that's going to be coming up. I think, I think we're looking at Tuesday. Uh, 
Our Thursday. first show is the 27th, the February 27th. That's next Tuesday. And that is going to be okay. the kind of a primer on the criminal justice system. Absolutely. I can't wait to listen to that. Also, for everyone that's, uh, I'm still going to be on the air. So, you know, I know. People are, everybody just, everybody was like, shit. <laughs> but, but we're actually going to get away from that. Lisa's going to be kind enough to join me on the reboot of the show that I had for a while called Behind the Curtain. Um, it's going to be a coast to coast AM style show. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, Art Bell used to do it. Now George Nury does it. Uh, but it's paranormal, Bigfoot, conspiracies, uh, the vaping issues. Uh, it's, it's not going to be political. Um, it's all going to be, in fact, you heard me on air kind of use this show to try to, to talk to Mr. Dorsey about his uh, upcoming project, Demon House. And I know that Baggins uh, is, for some, is okay. For some, he's overrated. We'll get that. But, you know, <laughs> some of his stories and whatnot, and, and, you know, some people like to hear them. And, and uh, you know, we want to hear that. You know, um, a couple of years ago, I did an interview with Father uh, Mike Maginal, who was the priest involved in the Latoya Ammons case in Indianapolis. Um, I've had Stephen Stroyford on, uh, Greg Franklin from Haunted Tours. I want to start doing something. Oh, uh, one of the guests, potential guests, I don't want to leak too much out, Lisa, but one of the potential guests is uh, Linda Ives, the parent of Kevin Ives, the mother of Kevin Ives, who was one of the boys on the railroad tracks that night in Alexander, Arkansas, who was murdered. And that was all part of the Mina connection. So the huge controversy there, the Clinton Chronicles, uh, the Clinton machine, you know, we're going to talk to her. It's been 31 years, and there's been no justice in her son's murder. Um, right. You know, uh, then uh, what we do is, and we're going to try to do this, is we take, we do what I call the 50 states haunted tour, where we take a particular, like down here in Little Rock, the haunted tours Little Rock. And we'd use that for Arkansas, and, and we're going to go around and try to get somebody from every single state to talk about the paranormal activity within that state. I actually got one from your hometown, Lisa, Aline Pustiana uh, from New Orleans is going to come in and and talk uh, on her couple of books, Dangers of Paranormal Investigation. Also, potentially, uh, Victor Salazar from um, who's been on Ghost Hunters. Uh, episode of that we're going to have her on or, or him on so uh, there's a whole list of stuff that we're going to be doing but lisa i wanted to uh to go ahead i think something that's important that we've that we've dealt with i'm gonna read some names off um we had a terrible 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 event uh, occur um this yeah. week and that's uh man there was a lone gunman that killed 17 people, and I'm going to go ahead and read their names off. I'm not reading his name off because I can give two shits about him. I will not mention. I will not mention his name. You know his name, seen his face, unfortunately. But the victims are Alicia Aldeff, 14, Scott Bagel, and I and I hope I'm pronouncing these names correctly. 35, um, Martin Duque Anguayo, 14 years old. 
Uh, Nicholas Dewart, 17. Uh, one of the more the sad stories, Aaron Feist, 37, the football coach who threw himself in front of students to protect them from the bullets. Uh, Jamie Gutenberg, 14 years old. Chris Hickson, 49 years old. Luke Hoyer, 15. Carol Logan, 14 years old. Gina Montalio, 14. Shokan Oliver, 17. Alain Petty, 14. Meadow Pollock, 18. Helena Ramsey, 17. Alex Shatner, 14. Carmen Shintrip, 16. Peter Wayne, 15. I mean, Lisa, just reading those in the ages, 14, 15-year-olds, the high school coaches that, that threw themselves in front of them. I mean, yeah. a senseless, senseless, senseless act of violence. And kind of getting into that, I don't want to get into the whole gun control, but I will call for the Justice Department to actually do their job at some point and let's stop this violence. You know, for six months prior to this, you had this guy on comments. The FBI interviewed him and didn't do anything about it. And, you know, one of the problems is that cannot the FBI, local police, cannot charge someone for words without action. Um, they cannot charge someone for their thoughts. Without action. Well, Lisa, so, it's funny that you say that, though. But there was an actual case here in North Little Rock <clears throat> where they've actually prosecuted someone for making threats like that. Um, also, going back to the Washington State uh, deal, where the grandmother read the journal, uh, of, uh, her and but, stopped. That deal. I mean, I I'm not that, saying they charge him, but could you not stop it somehow? Could you not well, try to prevent this? I think the problem in the Florida shooter's case was that he was making generalized, I want to be a school shooter when I grow up. He wasn't identifying a specific person or a specific target. The case in Arkansas, I believe the child, the kid, specified the school and I think specified students at the school. And that's what made his threats actionable. Well, maybe not charging Lisa, but what about this? Now, you're the legal expert, so, I mean, maybe I'm in the wrong or maybe I just don't know. But, I mean, Michael, you asked, I mean, this is, here's my situation. If Michael's on his Facebook page and he says, I want to be a professional school shooter, and I see that in this logs, he's had a troubled past. His parental system is absolutely uh-huh. obliterated around him. And he's gotten possession of an AR-15. Does that not constitute reasonable uh, doubt? Well, whatever you know, reasonable... The, God damn. The problem, uh, the problem, I think, would be if police contacted Michael and said, we want to talk to you about this, and Michael says, Oh, I'm sorry. I was only joking. I didn't mean it. And the Florida shooter was living with a good family. They were on Good Morning America. They were interviewed this morning. And they were giving him structure and, and things. So, you know, he just didn't want, he didn't want help. Um. Maybe he was too far gone from 
the tragedies that had occurred throughout his life. I don't know. But um, now, no, I. It, it's hard and it, it's very difficult when it's because when they talk to somebody after reading these things and they say they're joking, they didn't mean it. You can't prove that they had any intent. Well, I mean, you can say I was joking and I didn't mean it, right. but if you, but but you got to look back, Col- Columbine, the fucking Aurora, right. Colorado. All of these different well, uh, the Pulse nightclubs, if you have a tendency of history of these potential people doing this and a pattern of behavior that's led to this, you know, at some but, point, do we, do we, de, do we desensify that, the, the, that the, was, the population and go, hey, this guy's a freaking whack yeah. job. Let's lock his ass up and, and evaluate the situation. Now, a friend of mine made a good point, though. A standardized test is BS when it comes to uh, trying to identify a pattern of of behavior mentally. You would have to Correct. literally lock this person up for a year and do psych evals after psych to truly Correct. get to the heart of the matter, right? And Yes, and that is, I think the other problem with Columbine, while uh, the two shooters in that case were very vocal with each other and very vocal with some of their their peers the parents didn't know what was going on and I think that also a lot of times we are looking at the behavior with hindsight so as things are going along nothing rises to the level of a criminal act that is prosecutable. And then when they go off the rails and do something horrible, people say, Oh my God, how could we, how could we miss it? And it's, it's a a similar thing with suicide. You know, you, you may have little hints that don't really make an impact until the deed has been done. So, Right. You know, for the problem with school shooters is while some of them are very vocal and they, they are very disturbed and very disturbing, you really can't – they don't do anything criminal until they do the ultimate act, which is carrying out an attack. And I think maybe, just maybe, and we'll wrap, we'll wrap this up, was I'm sure you have a dumb criminal as well, and I'll re- yeah. Dumb law for the last time, uh, you know, in the in this show. Uh, and did you, and did, everybody, you use, did you use my idiot? Oh, no, Sean. was the American Idiot of the Week. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, Sean wasn't the American Idiot of the Week, but that was his part of the American Idiot of the Week deal. Was oh, uh, okay, okay. Is he gone? <laughs> but yeah. No, Sean okay. had to leave, so, um, you know, and it's kind of a, this was fun. We had a great time doing the American mm-hmm. Idiots, and we're going to have a great time moving forward. Uh, just to kind of give everybody a quick backstory, Lisa O'Brien came to Talk Radio 49. Uh, we actually interviewed her on the West Memphis 3 uh, Guilt uh, show, and we invited her back on, and, and as things progressed and, and, and evolutionized themselves, 
here at Talk Radio 49. You know, obviously me and you, Lisa, don't see eye to eye with Sean in political views. And he wants to branch off and do his own thing. And, and to be honest, I'm not a re- – I mean, I am a political guy. I mean, he'll look at my Facebook page. But, <laughs> you know, it's easier for me to, to open up an argument and debate on Facebook because I can come back to that shit at any time, and I don't have to do right. it right here and right now. Right. But, Correct. you know, I'm not a big one of political guy. I'm more of a fascinating, X-File-ish type going to bring you something, you know, because we all get inundated with the news. God, we get in. Oh, God, it's everywhere. And, and honestly, you know, you're more of a true crimes guru, and that's what you're going to bring, and it's going to be interesting. And if you beat me in the ratings, I'm going to be pissed. But it's okay. <laughs> she probably will. Because, look, she read the book. As long as I'm so hoping. I am going to plug both shows equally, and my attention will be on both shows equally. Except for Sean's show. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, well, Sean's show will be on his show, so, you know. <laughs> but no, I Sean, just think that I... I, I do wish him the best. I, I hope he does. I'm hoping he does well because he does. Oh, he, he does will. deserve. He does deserve to oh, do well. Oh, absolutely! So. And Sean, Sean loves a good argument, and he will present a good a good argument. Uh, so I definitely encourage everyone to check that out. You're gonna get with that show. You're gonna get it. You're gonna get what uh-huh. I call Snowflake University. But hey. <laughs> I was thinking it was a good argument, but not the opposing view. Right. He loves his argument. <laughs> Sean loves himself. <laughs> uh, that's okay. We all we all need to be a little bit more love of uh, love in love with ourselves. <laughs> We'd be much happier and people. And then of course, you know, you'll bring the true crime and then we'll do behind the curtain. So you're gonna have a mixed bag. Michael's still going to be here doing Mike and Mike at night on Wednesday nights. So we've got the gamut run here. We've got true crime. We've got the paranormals type stuff. We've got the political stuff. We've got sports stuff. Right. We got wrestling and, on Saturday nights at ASWF and potential other venues. Goddamn, we are, we're like a big conglomerate of cable and satellite channels all having this huge orgy on Talk Radio 49. That's awesome. You know, I, I just want to say I'm clear and convincing Michael is going to get to play a more equal part with me. He's kind of going to be my co-host. Uh-oh. Okay, that's how I envision it. Um, because I think he can bring in he can bring in the uh, uh, how do you, you know, the, the, the media aspect. This is what the media says. Now what's so he'll be the your devil's advocate counterpart to a degree. That'll be interesting. That'll Correct. be um Correct. Whoa. Look at look at Michael. Michael is stepping up in the world. Yeah, but you you but you are the devil. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Sean. Yeah. 
Well, the fact is, I tell you right now, I want to introduce something to the listening audience before we go. Lisa, I I was at a clothing store with my fiance now, and uh-huh. um, we there was a shirt, and I am a huge Golden Girls fan. I love the Golden Girls. There was a shirt hanging on my wall, and it was so awesome. It says, "Be Dorothy on the streets and Blanche in the sheets." I love that shirt. Oh my God, I I love that one too. I saw that shirt and I was like, only only like only me though, because like I was like, oh my, I love that. And everybody was looking at me like, really? That's perfect. What's uh-huh. wrong with that shirt? Nothing is wrong with that shirt. Just a little date. I love that. Got dated? The I Golden Girls, damn it, are relevant today? I would buy that shirt. Maybe to me, but what team is www.torrid.com. Torrid Clothing. They actually have it online, Lisa. If you're no, we're not talking okay. about but I'm letting and you know where the shirt is. Do, do they have one? Did you see one that says, Be Sophia in a street fight? <laughs> no, I did not. I did not. Because, see, but I'm I a Golden want, Girls fan. I love the Golden Girls. I, my, if we were the Golden Girls, Michael would be Rose. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> I always felt like that was the Sophia. The girl. No, you're Rose. <laughs> okay, I got one. So we give Michael the term Rose. Um. You can see Lisa being the Dorothy type. The, the, um, although, although the other day, Michael, although the other day when, when the comment was made about the, the fellatio remarks, Lisa delved into the Blanche oh. zone there for a minute. I think the best. I was about to say, Sean's got to be Blanche. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that was, that was more of a Sophia. Sophia. Yeah, true. true. So Sophia so, would not so, take any crap. True. So, so we got Rose, Sophia, so we got Blanche and Dorothy. I would think... You're not Blanche, Brad. No matter how much you want to be a whore, you're not Blanche. <laughs> but Sean's not a whore. Ellie's married. He's Sean Castleberry. He's Dorothy. He's Sean Castleberry. Sean's Dorothy. He's got the hair for a whore. He's got the hair for a whore. I don't exactly. care. He's smug, damn it. <laughs> but does this mean we can all have like a slice of cheesecake after this? Oh yeah, we all cheesecake for all. I love cheesecake. I need to crack out of it. <laughs> actually, problems can be solved. I actually yeah. had a frozen cheesecake with chocolate wrapped around it at the basketball game the other day. Was it good? I paid seven dollars for that some bitch, but it was <laughs> it was really good. It was not. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it was delicious. It was huge. It had a crispy, like, I'm going to go one of those shows. Had a crispy outer texture. It was buttery. It, the, the chocolates mixed in with the, the creamy cheesecake. It was very fluffy and airy. I'm practicing, Lisa, so when I judge a food uh-huh. contest, yeah, I'm practicing. I, I use terminology. For, <laughs> but uh, State Fair? Can't wait for the state fair. And I won't have to worry about fitting into the tux because I've already done that. So I'm good there. I can eat all the funnel cakes and all the fried shit in the world. So, 
Now, but Lisa, you we got see that story I sent you. Yes, I saw about it. the airplane. Did okay, you see the good. story? Here's a guy. Okay. A guy was actually forced a plane to land. Okay. Because a fight broke out because dude was ripping him on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> he was ripping him on the plane, and I guess some passengers got pissed and they got into a fight and they had to emergency land the plane. Because dude was drilling them in the in the plane. Oh wow, that's bad. Because I rode a plane here recently last October, a freaking pine number. Oh yeah. And I mean, come on, dude. Look, I've actually dropped a bomb or two in a freaking auditorium that have have you're confining this to a plane. Come on, dude. That'd be, that'd be bad. That would be horrible. Like I would, I would whip your ass, dude. If like, you're on a plane and you're like, "My bad," I'd be like, "What?" And then I'd be like, "Oh, okay." Then I'd be trapped. Alright, so we are we ready for dumb criminal? Or what you got next? Yes, we're ready for Dumb Criminal. All right. Go ahead for Dumb Criminal. All right. We have a gentleman from my parents' home state of Delaware. He was at a an ugly sweater party at the Franklin Institute in, I believe it's in Philadelphia. And what are you laughing at already? I haven't gotten the funny part. Often. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, so he was at this party. The Franklin Institute has uh, an exhibit of terracotta warriors from the Chinese first emperor on display. And so here we have a dumb criminal who is going to cause an international incident. Okay. Uh, the gentleman who shall remain nameless went into the closed exhibit, posted selfies of himself with the a warrior a warrior called the cavalryman, and then broke off the warrior's thumb. Needless to say, the FBI got a warrant. Searched his house, found the thumb in his drawer, in his desk, and arrested him. Wow. So China is demanding very strict punishment of this person, as well they should be. And I would vote for them to send him to China and let them deal with him. Wow. So that is your dumb criminal. And he probably would have gotten away with it if he hadn't taken those selfies. You know what, Lisa? And also, when you came up with that, boom. Uh, that's Lisa needs to do this on her show. And you need to do an intro because she just went Scooby-Doo on me. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I just saw Lisa going, I would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for you dumb kids and that meddling dog. <laughs> I thought, okay, so Lisa, real quick, 
here yeah. in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're all screwed. You're screwed. You're screwed. You're screwed. Double J screwed. Everybody's screwed because flirtation between men and women on the streets of Little Rock may result in a 30-day jail term. Oh, Jesus. I'm done. I'm done. Uh, We're going to jail. Well, see, I can't can't report it because I never know when anyone's flirting with me. Well, you know, back before I decided that I was going to tie the knot with my beautiful girlfriend, back in the day, I may have flirted a few times in the river market. About the time Tupac was killed. I may have flirted a little bit, so put me away, throw me away, I'm in prison. But anyways, we appreciate... Is it because because the flirting is so bad? Hell, I don't know, Lee. I'm 39 and fat. I'm done with life. I mean, literally, I am 39 years old, and I'm fat. I have cottage cheese ass. Life is over. You're on the downhill. No. <laughs> the twilight of your existence. <laughs> I am. Yes, yes. You know life is over when you're almost 40, and you, your ass likes cottage cheese. But that's a different story. Yeah. Well, you know, 53 and... Pretty much the same, so y'all better buckle up, buckle, buckle up, buttercup. Absolutely, I get you there. Well, Lisa, we we appreciate you being a part of Talk Radio Forty Nine. This is not what is it? This ain't the end. This ain't the end. This isn't goodbye. This end. is just not the end. It's and I know chapter. that people are going, "Well, shit, why?" <laughs> I didn't like the first chapter. chapter. Well, they don't listen. But anyway, turn the page, Bob Seger once said, and you might find some writing on the other side. I added that part. But uh, uh-huh. anyways, February 27th, you and Michael will debut the Clear and Convincing. I'm glad I came up with that. Yeah. I'm glad I came up with that. Yeah, that is good. Good job. Clear and Convincing, that was my idea. Not really. <laughs> mine was mine was something else. I, got, I forget what mine is. Your your ideas were great. They were taken. There are other podcasts. With well, we're better names. than that. So I just—it's a damn coup. Overthrow their ass. <laughs> we got Detective so, Cating. They don't. Yes, we had Michael right. Dorsey and Correct. Detective Glenn Cating. Damn it, we had Correct. Bruce Buffer Correct. at one time. Yes, we did have Bruce Buffer at one time. That would be on Mike and Mike. Look in the archives. But uh, <laughs> next Sunday night, we're going to start every – it's going to be a bi-weekly show for Behind the Curtain. We're going to start that next Monday night. Probably, I don't know who the guest is going to be. Tune in for that. And then Wait. also another show that's coming in, too, is going to be a, – we have a wrestling show called ASWF Saturday Night where we will broadcast live from the event in which I'm the Hill Commissioner – we have Double J, Michael's the announcer, but we're going to be doing a new show with myself, Michael Carnahan, the infamous one, Double J. It will be back. Was ASWF Aftermath? Aftermath. Aftermath. If you're into professional wrestling, come check that out as well, and then you can listen to the action unfold in the Valiant Arena on Saturday nights. But clear and convincing on Tuesday, Mike and Mike at night on Wednesdays. On the reel on uh, Sundays, and then behind the curtain every other Monday, uh, ASWF every Saturday night, every other Saturday night, or when a show is running, We're running the ASC Aftermath, 
I'm going to have to start doing meth again. Yeah. Oh, I mean, no. shit that came out. Sorry. <laughs> Lisa, time to prosecute. Whoa. Well, with that being said, let me just click this button. No. Well, anyway, y'all, we had fun. We had fun doing the uh, show. It's been fun. It's been real, but it hasn't been real fun. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, on to bigger and better things, and everybody's moving on. We will see you guys what next this Wednesday night again. Mike and Mike at night. Tune in. The non-Valentine's Day show begins Wednesday, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Good night, everybody. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Call it a night. The party's over.